This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hey everyone, I'm John. Thanks for being with us this week for Calvary Online. As we continue our study, our Mark It Up series in the first letter to the Thessalonians. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of thinking about what's contagious. Are you contagious? Am I contagious? Is this room contagious? Is it safe for me to be here? Is this table contagious? All we've thought about for the last year in large measure is what's contagious. There are other things that are contagious too, not just viruses. One thing that I'd like to talk to you today about that's contagious is culture. Culture is contagious. Culture is the way we live. Culture is what we know, what we believe, how we behave. And it's passed on from one person to another. It spreads like a virus, but hopefully in a good way. We're all familiar with culture because we have our own culture in our family. We live a certain way. We become especially aware of this when we go on vacation with another family. Their kids go to bed at a different time. They eat meals differently. They want to do different stuff. They maybe sleep late or wake up early. And we notice, gosh, our family culture is a little different than theirs. We've experienced culture probably in good ways and bad ways at work. Some of us are a part of a great workplace culture where people are encouraging and you have good relationships there and you can really do great work because of the culture that exists at that workplace. Some of us maybe have had the unfortunate circumstance of being a part of a bad workplace culture. Maybe it's super negative or people are critical or maybe even sometimes it's unethical. And the the problem with a, with a negative culture at a workplace is when new people join it, they often become infected with that negativity. The good thing about a good workplace culture is when people become a part of it, it spreads there too. And people suddenly find this encouraging, wonderful place to work and it reproduces, it carries on, it spreads. That's because culture can spread from person to person, from place to place. We're going to see today in our study in the first letter to the Thessalonians how that culture spread, how a new culture that was beginning in the first century church spread from one region, a region that was surrounding the city of Thessalonica that was known as Macedonia, which is today's modern Greece, northern modern Greece, to even a southern region uh, of what is today modern Greece known as Achaia. That contagious culture spread from Thessalonica to surrounding regions in Macedonia and Achaia. And it spread in two ways. First, it was taught. There was a message that was shared from person to person, from people to people, and it went from place to place. And secondly, it was caught. People watched, people looked, people learned about the way that the Thessalonians lived and how this new faith had changed them and transformed them. And that was how it spread. It was taught and it was caught. So what kind of culture was it? This one that's spreading, this culture that's taught and caught. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter one, and we'll begin in verse four. 1 Thessalonians chapter one and verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. This culture is a family culture. Paul, Silas, and Timothy writing to this church in in Thessalonica, they refer to them as brothers and sisters. 
a part of a family made up of a group of people who share a common identity that's more than just what they believed, more than just what they valued. But this identity was a familial one. It it was one particularly that was built around the confidence of knowing that they're loved by their father, God. That's what it says in verse four. Brothers and sisters, loved by God, the creator of the universe, the one who holds all things together, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say to the Thessalonians, he loves you. Imagine that. The creator of the universe loves you, knows you personally, cares about you completely. The Bible says he knows everything about you, knows how many hairs you have on your head, has known you from before you were born and loves you deeply. And it goes on to say that this God has chosen you. He's chosen you. Now, when we think of choice for us, it's based on preference. What do we like? Well, I happen to like a black car or I prefer steak. It's about my own personal choice, about my preference, about what I would like to have in the moment. And we make choices all the time that are based on value judgments. I like something more or less, and that's why I choose it or don't choose it. The other word for choice that's used here in this text often is election. It's the idea that God has elected you. Paul and Peter in other letters to early churches use this word to describe the people of God, that they are elect, that they are chosen by God. And similarly, when we hear the word choice, when we hear election, we also think of choosing like the best candidate or at least the one we like the most the one whose values match ours, the one who make the promises that we think are gonna help us the most. Some of my most famous campaign promises are the ones that occur during elementary school student council elections. Maybe you experienced some of them. They usually begin with a relatively small but equally popular commitment. Something like, when I'm elected president of student council, there will be no more homework. Everyone loves that one. They think, who do these teachers think they are anyway, giving us homework? We don't need that. So it really riles up the crowd. And then after the speech, they do some follow-up polling and they discovered that the second graders don't really have a lot of homework. So it's not really resonating with them. And so they get together all their political advisors and develop a new strategy and think about, okay, we need to come up with a new platform. We need to really get those second graders on board to get the vote. And then the other campaign drops a bombshell. Their promise is a big one. All day recess, no more classes. Oh boy, everybody can get on board with that one. And it looks like it's over for the other side that they've won because the other side has said that it's time for all day recess and everybody's on board with that until the ultimate campaign commitment the one that always leads to a victory in an elementary student council election. We're gonna put Coca-Cola in the water fountains. The crowd goes wild. They eat it up. They love it. This is their candidate. They win in a landslide. The victory parade happens. That's what we think about when we think of election. That it's, that it's like a preference or a popularity contest or a choice for the best candidate. And when it's applied to God, we think God's casting some sort of vote, choosing his favorite person, the one that he likes the best. But that's not how God thinks about choice, about election. 
If you're a follower of God, chosen by God, it's for one reason and one reason alone, that God loves you. God loves you because he loves you. Not because you're lovable, but because of who God is. Because God is love. It's a part of his character. It's unchanging. It never ends. And his love is cast on you. It's not because of what you look like or sound like or because of things you've done or will do or have done in the past, but God loves you because he loves you. We see this echoed in the Old Testament too. In in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses seven and eight, it says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. He says to the nation of Israel, to the family of God. For you were the fewest of all peoples, it says, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loves you because he loves you. God chose you because he loves you. God calls you to be a part of his family because he loves you. Now, if you're watching this and you're not sure about God's love for you, or you're not sure that you've become a part of this community, this family of God chosen by him to follow him. I want you to look at the very closing verses of this chapter, right in the second half of verse nine at the end of chapter one of 1 Thessalonians. This is a description of how Paul says the Thessalonians became a part of the family of God. It says, you, the Thessalonians, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There are three verbs that's used in in verses nine and 10, that you turned to serve and wait. This is what happens in the life of every Christian, that at some point in your life, God reveals himself to you. His love becomes clear to you. And you see that you've been living your life for something else. The the word that this text uses is an idol. In the first century, idols were common. They were physical objects that people would worship. Maybe that hasn't been your experience in life, or maybe it has been that you're worshiping a physical idol, but maybe it's a Maybe it's more of a figurative idol, something else in your life that's winning your heart's affections. It could be success. It could be money. It could be power. It could be sex. It could be all sorts of different things that your heart longs for more than it longs for God. And what the Bible says in verse nine here of 1 Thessalonians is that people who put their faith in Jesus turn from an idol to God. They turn their hearts away from him. This is the idea uh, from, an ob- from an object, from an idol to God. This is the idea of repentance, that you make a paradigm shift. You turn away from this idol to the one true and living God. If you've never done that, I would call you to do so. I would call you to throw yourself at the mercy of God and say, Lord, I turn away from this life that I've been living, from these things that I've been serving. And I wanna turn to serve you, the true and living God. Our God's alive. That's distinctly different than a physical object like an idol that may have a resemblance to a living thing. It might look like an animal. It might look like a person. It might have a nose. It might have eyes. It might have ears. But a physical object can't hear, can't see, 
Whereas our God who is alive sees you, knows you. His heart is filled with love for you because he is alive. And so you turn to serve the living and true God. And then you wait for the return of his son, Jesus Christ, for the promised hope that we talked about last week, that Jesus Christ will come again and that he will save you and you will be with him forever and ever. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus recently and you'd like to talk to someone about it, we'd love to know about that. You can let us know on our website. You can fill out that connect card and let us know that I've, I've recently made a decision to turn away from the life I was living, to turn toward the true and living God. Now, as Paul, Silas, and Timothy go on, they describe the ways in which it was obvious that the life that they were living and that the love that God had for the church was so important. So God loved this church, it says in verse four, brothers and sisters loved by God, he has chosen you. And they know that because it says in verse five, our gospel, the good news about Jesus, what we just talked about has come to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So this is the first way that culture spreads. Culture is taught and it's taught specifically by a word in verse five. They said something. That's the way it's spread. It's taught from one person to another. People are told something. In this case, there was a word that was shared by Paul to some Thessalonians and they became believers. They used words to invite them to join this family culture, this new community that was being created in the first century, the family of God. They had a message. And when they spoke, they spoke that word to them. They preached. Now, the idea of preaching often falls on hard times. I hear from people occasionally, you know, preaching's outdated. It's old fashioned. People aren't interested in that. They don't really want to listen to speakers anymore. I find that fascinating that people say that. And then you have the rise of things like the popularity of TED Talks, where people listen to spoken words, where people listen to people speaking. It's amazing too, when there's a crisis in the United States, the first thing that the country wants to happen is for the president of the United States to address the nation with a word, to speak words to the people. But people say, no, no, no. We don't want to hear speakers anymore. What we really want the church to be engaged in is is other forms of communication, like the church should make movies. Maybe the church should really be engaged in social media or the church should ride the popularity wave of TikTok. That's how we'll share the gospel with people. I have absolutely no problem with Christians who are gifted stepping into media, to working on movies, to helping create content, to being influencers on social media. But there is a unique calling of the church to speak a word, to speak a message. And it's a teaching. It's not a word from a charismatic speaker or a clever clever spokesman. It's not just a word from society, but it's a word from a very specific place, from the scripture, from the word of God. And that's exactly what Paul did when he began ministering in Thessalonica. We read about it in Acts chapter 17 and verse two. It says that Paul went into a synagogue of the Jews and as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, for Jesus, the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus 
whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. This was the word rooted in the scriptures and preached to the people in Thessalonica. So the word we share are the words of God. So when we teach, we do so from the scriptures. That's why we're committed to opening the Bible together. That's why we're committed to doing a series like this, where we study God's word together, where we open the scriptures. And that must be the center of the church, not just in our services, not just at Calvary Online, not in person as we gather, but in all of our ministries. With Calvary kids as they gather, the word of God must be shared with Calvary students, in our home groups, in our life groups, even when we gather one-on-one as a church community and we share with each other, we want to be so centered on the scripture. That's where the word comes from. The word we share is the word of God. And that carries with it a tremendous responsibility because we want to handle it rightly. We want to know what it means. The good news is that we see in this verse, we're not alone in it. Back in 1 Thessalonians, it says that the gospel came in word and in power. It came in power. Because since these words are not our words alone, but they are the words of God, they carry with them a supernatural power. Hebrews 4.12, a verse that many of us are familiar with, says, For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's nothing else like it. It has a power unlike anything else, unlike any other word. And that power is enabled, it goes on to say, by the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring power to God's word, to illuminate it in our hearts, to shine a light on it so that we might understand it. And that's our prayer every time we open the word of God, that the Holy Spirit would speak through it and to us, that we would hear the very voice of God as we read it. And it's his responsibility that we would agree with it, that we would understand it, that we would embrace it, that we would see it as true. It's so freeing to know that when we share the word of God, that the Holy Spirit is right there with us. He's his partner in it. We're not alone in it. And so right now, even as you're reading the word, the Holy Spirit's there with you, helping you to understand it. He's doing his work. He's working to align your heart with the heart of God so that you become aligned with what the word of God says. And one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit, our verse goes on to say, is that he would convict. It says with full conviction. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And I think he convicts in two ways. One, as we read the word of God and as we speak the word of God, we do so with conviction. We are confident that the word of God is true, that it's the very word of God, that it's powerful, that it's transformational in the lives of those of us who believe it and who follow it, that we can build our lives on it. And we do so, we speak it, we read it under conviction. That means that it's under, we submit to the authority of God, that we want it to search us, that we want it to convict us, that we want it to shape us, that we want it to turn us back to God if we've been drifting, that we would be under conviction. And that's our prayer for all of us as we open the word together, that we would all be convicted of the truth that is revealed to us in the scriptures. And we leave that work 
up to God through the Holy Spirit. Now, if we think the only way that a contagious culture spreads is by teaching, then we would just be the kind of people who don't practice what they preach, right? But culture is not just taught, it's also caught. Right here at the end of our verse, at the end of verse five, the second half, it says, you know, the Thessalonians do, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You know, Thessalonians, what kind of men Paul, Silas, and Timothy were for your sake. Their manner of living, the the way that Paul, Silas, and Timothy lived matched their message. And so they lived their their lives in such a way that others wanted to be like them. Verse six says, that you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You became imitators. That's how culture is caught. People see us live our life based on God's love for us and his work in us, and they imitate it. They learn by looking. It's kind of like the popular kids in school. They're the ones that everyone wants to be like. You wanna dress like them, maybe talk like them, act like them. They're usually good looking and athletic. They might be wealthy. They usually wear nice clothes. They're the cool kids. People admire them and other kids want to be like them. The good news is if you're in that season of middle school, early high school, that that popularity culture fades. But there always are people that we admire that we look to, that we might imitate in subtle ways. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a friend in the community, maybe it's someone that we know. But they're usually people who are successful, athletic, influential. And if we imitate them, it's usually because they have something that we want. Maybe it's a great job, a nice house, a beautiful family. And that's what makes this imitation that happened in the lives of the Thessalonians so rare. Our text says that you imitated us because you received the word in much affliction. You received the word in much affliction. Can you imagine seeing someone living a life of suffering, affliction, pain, and saying, that's what I want. I want a life like that. And then you experience it for yourself and you imitate that? That's how you want to live your life? Acts 17 verse 5 tells us what happened in the city of Thessalonica when Paul, Silas, and Timothy showed up and shared the word. It says that the Jews there in the synagogue were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. Paul and Silas and Timothy have to flee to another city that's called Berea that was in that region. They get run out of town. And then the Jews who were there in Thessalonica who had caused this uproar hear about what's happening in Berea and they follow them there and they run them out of that town too. And the Thessalonians had witnessed this. They had seen it and they knew those people. They lived with them in their city and they had to continue living with them after they ran Paul, Silas and Timothy out of town in both places, they would come back and live amongst them. So they knew that suffering awaited them that affliction would be a mark of their life if they made a decision to follow Jesus. They had seen it in Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and they were willing to imitate that. 
They were willing because of what they learned about Jesus. And that's what it goes on to say back in 1 Thessalonians, that they not only became imitators of us, of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but and of the Lord too, of Jesus. They knew that suffering and affliction was a mark of the life of Christ. And so they said, if it happened to Jesus, we want it for our life too. And if we, as followers of Jesus, want to be like him, we have to embrace the reality that suffering was a part of his life and will be be a part of ours if we endeavor to follow him. I'm so encouraged to see that people in Thessalonica found faith in the midst of a time of pain and suffering and sorrow. That's where we're at today. It keeps feeling like maybe we're at the end of this year-long battle with COVID, that maybe we're coming to the other side. There's light at the end of the tunnel, but we're still kind of in crisis mode. And I don't know that we've actually come to realize how significant this last year has been for us, that we've reconciled about the loss that we've suffered, about the ways that our lives have changed. Some of us have lost family members. Some of us have lost jobs. All of us have lost the the way that we lived a year ago. And as we keep moving forward and forward in this, I don't know that we've taken enough time to grapple with how painful it's been, what kind of suffering experience we've faced. And I'm so encouraged to see that this church culture was still able to be passed around in the midst of tremendous pain, in persecution, in personal suffering. We'll go on to see as we study this letter that there were people in that church who were dying. And yet, do you know what it says they had that set them apart? Do you know what was so unique about the Thessalonians? That they they received the word, not only in affliction, but it also goes on to say that they also received it with joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit, that this is what set them apart from other people. That even as they suffered, even as they were afflicted, they were a people who were marked and defined by joy. My friends, I think that's what our culture today needs more than anything is a people who are filled with joy in the midst of suffering. As we have an increasing number of opportunities to care for people who are hurting, we wanna be people who are marked by joy. That doesn't mean that we ignore the sorrow that we've experienced. That doesn't mean we pretend like we're not experiencing suffering. It means that we do both of those things, that we suffer and experience joy, that joy marks us, that it's a defining characteristic of who we are. And I believe that when we're those kinds of people who are marked by joy in the midst of suffering and sorrow, that we can continue to be the kind of contagious church culture that spreads, that invites new people to be a family, to be a part of the family of God, to find faith in Jesus, to be cared for, to be loved, much like the culture of the church of the Thessalonians. We're praying for you. We love you. We care about you. If we can help you, please let us know. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful to be loved by you. We're thankful that you care for us, that you watch over us, that you long to hear from us. We pray, God, that you would give us strength and courage and joy in the midst of everything that's going on in our world.
We pray for your help, God. We pray for your courage. We pray for the strength to be a contagious people who help invite others into the family of God. God, we know this is ultimately your work. So we ask for your help to do it. We ask for the work of the Holy Spirit to be active amongst us, to reveal truth to us, to help shape us and mold us so that we might be an example to others. We give you thanks, God, for your love for us and pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.